because a third of America is underbanked uh, or unbanked, it's a solution that actually can work. The junior New York senator is proposing that every post office offer banking services, like checking and savings accounts, debit cards, and short-term loans, providing an alternative so people don't have to resort to predatory lending and high interest rates. That's not fair. Uh, that's people's real hard-earned money, and they need access to, to basic banking. special delivery it's a package of liquid flannel from arlington texas i am matthew hodges coming from omaha nebraska is my co-host and friend brendan williams brendan i really don't care do you (laughs) i do maybe it gets harder and harder (laughs) but I, i keep trying we'll talk about that here in a minute our guest tonight returning guest our friend from new york city the inimitable John Levitt. John, it's so nice to have you back. How are you? I'm good. So nice to be back. To be in touch with the people from the heartland once again. Heck yeah. You strange foreign creatures. <laughs> we kind of refer to it as the middle most of the time because that's what people on the coasts call us. No, the people on the coast don't think of you at all. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, John? Do you care? My ability to care <laughs> <laughs> is contingent on a lot of things. Yes. Okay, well, and I'm going to beat this joke into the ground. Obviously, what we're talking about is the amazing photo from today showing Melania Trump getting on a plane at Andrews Air Force Base to head down to Texas to visit one of these ICE detention facilities wearing a, what, like a $40 coat that just said, I really don't care, do you? $40, please. Come on. No, it, it is. It's, a, it's like a discount fashion house. I don't remember what it's called. It's called the Melania I don't care coat now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I'm wondering how many of these they're going to end up selling. I bet it's a lot. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be $40 for long. Yeah, pretty outstanding. And of course, there was there was the usual people saying, well, this might be fake news. The the original story was broke by the Daily Mail. So you always want to check their sources. But no, eventually somebody did talk to the spokeswoman for the first lady who confirmed that, yes, there was a coat, and no, there's no hidden message in that. No, it's a very obvious message. It was not hidden at all. Yeah. It was on full display for everybody. And here's, like, the wild thing. Like, if you remember Kellyanne Conway's patriotic Barbie foot soldier outfit from the inauguration, or is that three million, oh, yeah. million <laughs> years ago in relative time? <laughs> she was trying out for Hamilton. <laughs> but it's just like, that jacket is from Zara, and Zara... I'm going to bring the gay secret knowledge here, is a fashion house that has a really long reputation of making whoops all racist clothing. Ah. <laughs> like, they had a bag that they apparently they didn't know was full of swastikas on oh the outside. God, or a white is the new black shirt. It's like, what the hell is going on at Zara? Oh my How do God. you accidentally put swastikas all yeah. over something? Oh, and they had, they had child's garments that were styled after concentration camp uniforms. Oh my God. Like, this is not an accident. Yeah, that's amazing. It's bad enough to wear a shirt that says, like, I don't really care when you're going to, like, visit the migrant labor camps. But then to have it be from the secret Nazi fashion house or whatever, that's just (laughs) a bridge too far, you know? (laughs) Spokesman said, no, there's no hidden message. Obviously, people didn't didn't really like that too much. And then just in the past uh, hour or so... Uh, We're recording, this is a Thursday night, uh, June the 21st, so just about an hour ago he tweeted that no, in fact, there is a hidden message, and it's about 
the fake news media, which I don't know, that seems like such a non sequitur even for him. Well, right, and he says, it's because Melania has learned how dishonest they are, and she truly no longer cares. What are, like, I don't have the fortitude to, like, to actually go into this. I have to, like, depend on other people to do it. What are, like, the absolutely insane, crazed, like, conspiratorial QAnon people thinking about this? Because they will pick at, like, the barest threads of what they think is a conspiracy. And here's someone walking around with letters on their outfit. I mean, they may be a little bit distracted by the clip of Trump uh, just in the past couple of days in front of... I don't know what meeting he was at, but he's talking about how, basically, Democrats are running a, a secret child smuggling ring. And, I mean, he just... He came out and went full QAnon, and I, I'm sure that they're they're throwing themselves a pizza party. Oh wait, no, no, you don't you don't do that with the QAnon people. No, you you block the Hoover Dam and demand the president release the records. <laughs> right. Or you just like show up at the pizza place with your gun and just yeah. fire a couple rounds off to let them know that you're you're really serious about stopping. You know they're harming children. I mean these these PizzaGate people are all ostensibly saying, like, we're saving the children. But at the same time, they're like, oh, also, if they're brown children, though, like, hashtag lock them up. <laughs> right. They're, they're actors. They're, Ann Coulter told me so. <laughs> well, also, Brendan, you you found a piece of news that kind of that ties these threads together, right? Oh, yeah. So you mentioned QAnon. So, you know, Trump's now throwing out QAnon crazy right-wing conspiracy theories saying, well, the Democrats, like, love illegal immigrants because of all of the secret pedophile rings that the Democrats run, and, and hu they love human smuggling. Meanwhile, the Border Patrol is hiring a man with an arrest history involving child pornography. Yeah, a genuine sex offender. Right. Being hired to work at a child detention center for immigrants in in texas by ice that that's not a conspiracy theory that actually like did happen projection is the easiest form of narcissism and the conspiracy theory is trump doesn't know or care no he absolutely <laughs> knows nothing right no he he doesn't know anything but also i mean the proof is in the pudding with these people right because i check out that insane subreddit it used to be called like calm before the storm but that one got shut down wherever wherever they're associating with each other now like i haven't seen anything about that because because the thing about the QAnon, the whole pizzagate expanded universe <laughs> yeah the the pizzagate cinematic universe every single thing that happens they find some way to tie it into this narrative that this is actually all intentional on donald trump's part he's doing his best to expose you know pedophilia and corruption at the highest levels but then it's like, what do they do when it turns out that this is somebody hired on his watch to execute a policy that he's the one who's been pushing it? It's like the problem with all conspiracy theories. Like, you can believe that, like, the government is shooting the clouds full of chemtrails to make everyone sterile and depressed. But it's like, okay, you have that knowledge. That doesn't help you in any way. It's not like you can stop them. I, just, <laughs> right. I, just, I don't fundamentally understand the appeal. And I think it's just like there's a sense of control and a sense of narrative. The appeal of the conspiracy theorizing, you mean? Sort of get the appeal, but also like it's not indistinguishable from the signs of like early onset schizophrenia. And since we don't have mental health in this country, I always wonder like how many of these people are just extremely undiagnosed and unmedicated? I think that's right. I do think that the way that you phrased that was kind of funny. Not that we don't have a robust system of mental health care in this country, but that we just don't have mental health in this country. Period. And I think that's actually pretty accurate. <laughs>
Well, so that's the uh, those are the dispatches from Trump World, I guess. Um, I'm sure there will be more outrages by the time this episode comes out, and everyone will have completely forgotten about the jacket and whatever's happening with the executive order dealing with ICE detention facilities. But I want to pivot because we brought John on to talk about mm-hmm. a very interesting sort of a policy platform policy plank for progressives and socialists Mm -hmm. uh, known as postal banking. And I'm hoping that we can dig into that a little bit. Uh, I want to start off with the idea behind postal banking or just public banking in general starts off with this idea of divestment. Can you can you talk about divestment a little bit and why people are trying to divest from whom? Uh, The idea of divestment in postal and public banking is the idea that A lot of major cities and municipalities' money and their ability to move and manipulate money is through private banks. And private banks fund a lot of shit we don't like. And they also are free to charge whatever interest rate they want because, you know, their goal is to maximize returns for their uh, stockholders, not to maximize, get the fairest rate for the city. And in postal banking, a lot of the idea is that. A lot of people's money, that is the money they receive from selling their labor, gets tied up and nibbled away by these private banks who don't have their best interest in mind. They, of course, have their shareholders' interest in mind. And there should be an alternative. And indeed, there is an alternative in most of the world. And there was an alternative in this country from 1911 until 1964 of a bank of last resort, or rather a bank that would accept everyone. They wouldn't be run for profit. It would be managed publicly. And its funds would go entirely into the service of the people they were funding. So, you know, by giving your money to the postal bank, you're letting them continue the work of being a postal bank, not giving them a bunch of money so they can buy a bunch of oil stocks or a crap ton of Singapore apartments that they're then going to sell two cents on the dollar so they can buy more oil and gas stocks. Right. Invest in the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline or something like that. So, like, one of the major offenders here is Wells Fargo, which is which is massive. Um, mm-hmm. And they they have been involved in Keystone XL and the Dakota Access Pipeline. Longtime listeners will know that we come back to Wells Fargo a lot because they make the news all the time for incredibly sketchy business deals or practices like forcing their their tellers to engage in predatory sales te- tactics or opening up accounts for people that they never asked for, which has an impact on their credit scores, just so they can say that year over year they're, you know, they've opened this many accounts. One number that really stuck out to me was there's a big push in the city of Los Angeles around public banking, specifically because they pay to Wells Fargo for the the emission of their municipal bonds, something like a hundred million dollars. Oh my god! Just on fees and surcharges. And that's money that's going directly from the public fisc, a.k.a. the taxes that people pay to the municipality, straight into Wells Fargo for them to do with whatever they want. I believe L.A. Public Bank, the initiative found that if they had a uh, public bank that issued interest rates just half of what Wells Fargo did, they could fund twice as many city projects. That's insane. Right. And Citibank uh, just recently was fined... uh, 
I believe, like $200 million for the fact that they were manipulating the um, interest rates of a lot of their municipal-held bond, like public money, that the money like New York City was giving to Citibank. Right. And the attorney general just released like, oh, they were gaming the system immensely so that they would always profit on it no matter what. They were fined $200 million, but they probably made like 10 times that. Oh, yeah, they, prob- <laughs> they probably made like a billion dollars off it. So it's sure. a drop in the bucket. But it's like it goes to show just how how massively corrupt. And you know we've known this since, let's say, 08, how massively corrupt the American banking system is. And the fact that... <laughs> I, I'd, go back, I'd go back a little farther, maybe uh, I, the Gilded Age. <laughs> as I want to go into like some of the history, like you'll see what I mean by... 008, but um, okay. there needs to be an alternative to this. And in separating the idea of public bank and postal banking, postal banking is for citizens, public banking is for cities. You mentioned like there needs to be an alternative to the existing for profit bank system for poor people and people who don't have like assets to get a loan. And currently, that system is these like exorbitant fee charging, check cashing places. Where they charge like three hundred percent interest. Oh, it's it's seven thousand in some cases <laughs> on these short term loans. Oh yeah, no, it, it gets into the galactic levels. They become these debt traps that people just can't escape from. Now that's that's what the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was set up to do. So although that's about to be eliminated, apparently. Yeah, I was I was especially heartened today that we were just about to have this discussion with John, and the news came out that a judge in New York has declared the entire Consumer Financial Protection Bureau unconstitutional and that they can't operate anymore, that the entire thing has to go. Yeah, yeah, and they want to get rid of the Wachner rule as well, which is actually what a lot of the public bank advocates in New York like started snapping into action because it's like it was one of our last protections that were put up from uh, from the crash of 08, you know, and the crash of 08 happened because we removed all the protections from the 20s, 30s, and 40s that right. led to the savings and loan scandal. I mean, it, it's a whole history, and I can get into it if you want, other than banks bad. Really, <laughs> banks bad. Well, and Brendan and I had sort of a, a front row seat at the time as as a you know class trader straight out of college. We were both working as stockbrokers during the, the 2008 financial crisis, so we learned an awful lot about exactly what was going on in the sausage factory when it came to the way finances were set up and and specifically what you're referring to like the repeal of the glass steagall provisions <laughs> that that made it so that investment banks they could invest money but they couldn't use people's pensions and sort of the retail banking deposits in order to gamble on speculative investments and of course it was Bill Clinton who took those protections out, mm-hmm. and that led directly to the subprime mortgage crisis and all of those, you know, the derivatives and CDOs that, that people heard a ton about on the radio and on the news. But, you know, that stuff gets so arcane that I think I think just saying, yeah, banks bad is about all you need to say. Well, yeah, or, or that like the the right. uh, the foxes have been charge of in charge of the hen house for like forty years, and look where it's sure. gotten us. It's like right. all the protections that were very carefully built up because like the country nearly collapsed permanently, were all like very slowly whittled away. In fact, um, the circumstances in which postal banking in the U.S. was eliminated 
are actually really interesting, especially considering that postal banking exists in most other places in the world. It's it's a bit like the American healthcare system being tied to employment. It has to do with like this really specific historical situ- situation. Right. In like the early 60s, for the first time ever, there was a very large, very successful middle class that had a lot of money to save and invest. So banks actually started competing with savings rate, interest rates. Oh, man, wouldn't that be nice? I mean, do you get anything right now if you put your money just into a savings account? I mean, pretty much no. I I have one that's supposed to be one of the highest, and I made a nickel in 10 years. Yikes. Um, But it's like, you know, for the first time ever, like, there was actual competition. And actually, the Postmaster General at the time said, uh, well, our banking system is really robust and really healthy. Like, we don't need this stopgap anymore. So Johnson actually eliminated (laughs) it in order to streamline the federal government. And it was like, well, once the private banks realized there was no competition, and they had a complete (laughs) monopoly on everyone's savings... They decided not to keep competing for interest rates. I love that reasoning so much. It's like when, uh, you know, conservatives will say, like, well, I mean, look, like, the air is clean, the water is clean. Like, do we really need all of these uh, EPA protections anymore? Like, that's (laughs) that's just become government bureaucracy at this point. Yeah, no, it's not a bureaucracy that helps or sustains or provides a last alternative. No, no. (laughs) Right, right. But, um... So just in case anyone is unclear with the concept of postal banking, I'll start with that. Uh, postal banking means that the post office runs financial services. And these would be consumer financial services, right? Right, like right. Actually letting people cash their paychecks, maybe open a, a checking or savings account, maybe up to and including issuing small loans for things like home improvement and small businesses and things like that. Right, right exactly. And whenever you watch a documentary or read anything about these payday loan sharks, and they are sharks, they always say, well, we have to do this because no other bank would do these small loans. And he's he's true, but it's like, and then the unspoken (laughs) is, and that's why we have to raise interest rates 7,000%. Right. Well, and they would say, well, these loans, these small loans just aren't profitable. Like, that's why we have to charge an exorbitant amount. But if you eliminate the profit drive from the bank, and the bank is just like, oh, well, we're here to provide a public good... A lot of problems get solved. Yeah, we can have like a 2% loan. That's a, Like that's done in Germany like for the last 100 years. They've had municipally owned banks where everyone in the in the city is considered a shareholder. So like the goal is not to maximize profit. The goal is to democratize right. access to capital. Right. Well, and that's, that's incredibly important. Not just access to capital, but also easing the fees and penalties that people at the lower end of the income spectrum experience if they have a bank account. Yeah, it is incredibly expensive to be poor. Some statistics on that. This is from the uh, campaignforpostalbanking.org website. Uh, In the United States, one in 13 households is unbanked. So they don't use a bank for anything. So they're literally going to, I mean, I, I see them every Friday. I stop off at my local Walmart and there's a line down the block for people who are just going to the Walmart check cashing place. Um, most of the rest of those end up using uh, these alternative financial services. So that's payday lenders, it's auto title loan places, it's pawn shops. Um, so the, the demographic breakdown on what, what are considered the underserved populations, um, these are people with an average annual income of about $25,000 per year, more likely to be African-American, so 53.6% 
uh, of of black people in that income range are underserved. Forty six percent are Latino or they're young and disproportionately located in the south and in urban areas. So there's a there's a massive economic class incentive for this to happen because we're literally taking the money that the poorest and uh, most marginalized in our country make and we're siphoning it away to people who have more money than God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, it creates these systems of generational poverty. It creates cycles that, you know, no matter how hard you work, you can never get out of. If hard work led to riches, strawberry pickers would own mansions. Absolutely. You know, in addition to like the horrible practices of like payday loan lenders or like check cashing places, there are also um, in the city because like the campaign for postal banking, they're starting their first initiative here in Bronx, in the Bronx, which is one of the most underserved and unbanked communities in the United States uh, alongside uh, Baltimore and Cleveland, that a lot of people aren't paid in checks anymore. They're paid in like cards, like debit cards that they can use at ATMs. And if you have no bank in your area or if you're unbanked because you're trying to get a bank account, you need a lot of documentation. You need to speak English pretty well. You, You need money up front. So if you're just sure. getting your cash out of the ATM at the bodega, the bodega is going to take $2 every time you do that. You can get up to like $60 of your money taken away from you every month just for the privilege of having access to the money you earned. Like it's the most predatory, parasitic thing I can think of. And, you know, even if you're relatively like maybe lower middle class, I just had an x-ray done recently, which – doesn't happen very often, thank God. And they yeah. said uh, copays are only in debit or credit cards. I didn't know that. Thankfully, I have a credit card and I was able to do it. But my mind was thinking like, well, what if you didn't have one? Like what if you, for whatever reason, had okay insurance but didn't have access to this sort of plastic credit system? Yeah. Off to the camps. <laughs> Yeah, you would be just shit out of luck. And, you know, as many places start to move to, like, plastic only, which, by the way, I think should be illegal. Well, I, I think that's I think that's totally right. There was another statistic in one of the articles that you sent us that was talking about how um, people who go through the large commercial banks, so, you know, Chase and Wells Fargo and Citibank and some of these other big ones, um, end up paying because overdraft fees have skyrocketed in the past oh, yeah. decade oh, yeah. because because all of the other fees that you have to pay just to have a, a basic checking or a savings account have skyrocketed as well. And the banks will structure your payments to make it so that you get overdrafted. Too. Oh, yeah. They'll oh, rearrange and- the order that your payments come yep. in to find an excuse to give you a 35 or 50 or 75 dollar like yep, overdraft absolutely fee. so uh this this one study found that uh people who are at the lower end of the income scale who go through one of the large commercial banks um they pay something like 200 dollars per month in various fees to to their bank just to have uh you know basic financial services when the what the the margin of when people are at risk for homelessness is something like $26 per month. Mm -hmm. So we're literally driving people out of their houses just for trying to be a little bit more responsible with their money than just dealing with it in cash. 
Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of banks, I believe Bank of America, attempted to phase out uh, checking accounts of less than $5,000. Because, like, there are no, like, there are no more George (laughs) Bailey-style savings and loans anymore. Every bank is an investment bank because there's only three banks. Right. Why not a credit union? It's like, well, ultimately, a credit union is not as accountable and is not as public as a public option. And, you know, nothing's stopping a credit union from going going wrong either and becoming greedy right and credit unions aren't everywhere the the real selling point of a postal banking system is that the united states postal service has a mandate to reach every single household in the united states absolutely so you can make sure that there is a banking option within reach of every single person and this goes to a a larger point i like to make about um because sometimes Sometimes I get argued on the left about this, which is always fun. And they're like, well, like this is this is a baby step. This is something the rest of the world has had for a while. This isn't really true revolutionary thought. And I'm like, okay, you know what is revolutionary thought? <laughs> if you have a place where you can interact with the government in order to get, send, or receive money, you now have a place where you can safely get like your UBI. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it does start to lay the groundwork for alternative financial arrangements. But, you know, what you mentioned is one of my favorite parts about the idea of basic banking services being offered at your local post office. For one thing, the post office is it's financially sound as an organization. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly efficiently run and it does serve every single neighborhood. I mean, even if you're way out in a rural area, you're, you're much closer to a post office than you are to anything like a branch office of a Wells Fargo. Uh, Another thing is that if we start expanding postal service and remember the campaign for postal banking is being run by mostly retired post office workers which is kind of cool. But um, oh yeah, nice. the uh, the thing is, like, if you start this whole, like, okay, the post office is now going to be a bank, you're going to have to start to hire more people, and they're going to hire people from within their communities. You're going to be you giving jobs to, you know, isolated areas, rural areas, even, you know, inner city areas. Maybe some of them will be ex-payday loan people who grow conscious. You don't even have to spend anything because the infrastructure's already there. Yeah, it's I already mean, there. Yep. It's already there. It's a good thing it's infrastructure week. Trump <laughs> yeah. should get on this right Always. away. Well, it's like I, I think the same way about like libraries and schools. Like schools could be 24-hour daycares. Libraries could be these sort of like information access points. And we already have a lot of this system. But the post office is the only one we haven't like really cut back on. So they're still in every community. Right. Well, I think it's I think it's a brilliant idea. I'm so glad that uh, you're out there advocating for this. Uh, hopefully this gets the idea of public and postal banking out to a wider audience, because I think it's it really is. A, it seems like a win, win, win proposition. You guys, we should write a Broadway musical about postal banking. <laughs> well, I wonder. Going postal. I, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wonder. I wonder if that musical would be more or less politically relevant than, well, you know what? While we've got John on the line, why don't we take a little break and come back and talk about some musical theater for a while? Seymour Krellborn. So finally we meet you. This is an occasion. Let's toast it up yours. Relax. Can you pay? Let's talk turkey. Sign here and we'll book you on lecturing tours. Yes, darling. We're sending photographers Thursday, so get the 
plant ready and wear a clean shirt. Just sign this release. Peter Pan. Aren't you thrilled? It's the cover of Life magazine. Dessert? I'm telling you, son, it's a cinch to get ratings. The title is Marvin. The concept is mine. The first weekly gardening show on a network. And you're gonna host it, you lucky kid. Sign! They say the meat shall inherit. You know the book doesn't lie. It's not a question of merit. It's not demand that's supply. They say the meat gonna get it. And you're a mean little guy. You know the meat's gonna get what's coming to a Mayan bar. John, I'm gonna call it Kismet because you and I had already talked about having you on the show to do this segment. And then just the other night, I had a tweet kind of moderately blow up. I was talking about the musical Annie and how Annie at its heart is about somebody who starts off as a class conscious, active resistor and agitator who gets a little bit of uh, a little bit of the taste of the, the capitalist wealth and then just completely abandons all of her comrades and turns into a class trader. And you were you were in those replies and it made me really excited to talk about this, this topic of what is in today's America the most relevant musical uh, musical play or film. Well, um, with reference to Annie, I'll just say Lenin tells us we lose the liberals first. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, have you guys seen the Jay-Z Jamie Foxx Annie? No, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, man. What? Wasn't that the thing that made Cameron Diaz start to drink? <laughs> yeah, oh, she was t- she was terrible. If they recast Cameron Diaz with like Rihanna, it would have been a perfect movie, but Cameron Diaz does drag it down a little bit, but Wait, who'd she play? Was no, she Miss Hannigan in that? Yeah, oh yeah. Yes, right. it was so bizarre. <laughs> but they take some liberties like, and they and they make Jamie Foxx like a billionaire who's running for like mayor of New York. Didn't they cut out Thank You Mr. Roosevelt? Like the only socially conscious. Song <laughs> oh, of in that course, play? of course. Uh, no, it's uh, th- it's th- course, th- thank you very much, Herbert Hoover, right in the original stage play. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. that's not in the film version either. So anybody who grew up with the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, what's her name? I've got my original cast recordings right here. <laughs> okay, man. okay. They should have just replaced it with like thanks Obama. That would have been pretty good. <laughs> thanks Elon. <laughs> uh, okay, so the most relevant musical for the current political situation uh i haven't actually seen a lot of current musicals um because i don't have a lot of money and musicals are by their nature a or at least played musicals live musicals it's so weird to say that out loud uh, are an expensive bourgeois product and most of them are therefore bourgeois finished cinema which is like say rent they want to e-patter the bourgeoisie but they never want to actually challenge them in any real way because if it actually challenged them they wouldn't pay the money to see it yeah yeah that's absolutely right now while while we're talking about uh, bourgeois productions um, I, I think that some of our liberal audience uh, probably heard the question and went, well, it's Hamilton. It's obviously Hamilton. And I don't think that we're going to end up there. Um, I, I, I just keep picturing the, uh, you know, what the, the various fundraising emails I got during the 2016 election. That was, you know, if you can donate money right now, like you might win a chance to see Hamilton with Hillary Clinton, who ended up seeing it like four times or something. Uh, when 
Mike Pence likes Hamilton. That's all you need. <laughs> yeah, <about it. laughs> Dick, Dick Cheney is a huge fan. And, and um, well, you know, that's the limitations of art to actually do anything. Uh, there's a wonderful video by Lindsay Ellis uh, about rent, but also about Hamilton and about like the limits of bourgeois theater, which is surprisingly very, very thorough. And I definitely recommend it. Oh, yeah, I think but that's on my playlist. But if we're just talking about... That's a, that's a, it's like... Be pretty and do nothing is the title. Or, or, Be pretty and do yeah. nothing. Yep. 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 It's it's all about like how infeasible it is to have a play set during the AIDS epidemic that never mentions Act Up. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. And also, I would like to point out that Rent is a direct, almost. If the guy had lived who wrote it, he would have been brought on plagiarism charges <laughs> of a play called um, uh, People with Problems or People in Trouble. Interesting. It's like it's this it's the same thing except there's little singing and everyone is like actually political and um okay. But if we're talking about th- musical theater that has the capacity for change, there are two uh movie musicals okay. that I know have brought untold number of my friends to socialism because we all know that musical theater is a socialist project. <laughs> Watch Cradle Will Rock people. They are newsies. Yes. It's, it's amazing that a D- Disney now owns a property about unions. Yeah, literally about and unionizing and shutting down the means the of The billionaires production. or whatever. Yep. Tell them that they can't treat us like we don't exist. Pull it, Dernhurst! They think we're nothing! Are we nothing? No! We stick together like the dry workers and they can't break us up. Pull it, Dernhurst! They think they got us! Do they got us? No! We're a union now, the Newsboys Union. We have to start acting like a union. Even though we ain't got hats or badges, we're a union just by saying so. And the world will go! Right. And the other one is Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. Now, you mentioned Little Shop of Horrors in the thread, and I want you to take us through that because, you know, most people know that as the the funny one with Rick Moranis and Steve Martin as the evil dentist and the giant talking plant who says, feed me. John, how is that a socialist musical? Why, I'll tell you through song. No. Yeah, we we need a little music cue right then. (laughs) My ability to launch into, like, Harold Hill-esque advocations of unions <laughs> is really amazing. Um, I should try it. Absolutely. <laughs> no, so Little Shop of Horrors is about a downtrodden orphan who lives on Skid Row, where uptown all your uh, customers are jerks and they treat you like garbage. He discovers a rare plant that will lead him to great success. The problem is this plant wants more and more and more of him, literally, physically, through his blood. Now, didn't Marx tell us that capitalists are like a vampire on labor? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So the big... Oh, I get it. I I think I'm catching on. Right. The plant grows larger and larger and larger, bringing increasingly more and more fame and riches to our poor clerk. Unfortunately, the object of his real desire, which is to say an unalienated desire, his romantic attachment to the his fellow clerk, Audrey, mm-hmm. is dangled by the plant as a way of success. She will only love you if you're rich. And therefore, in order to remain rich, the plant 
who is capitalism, must keep being fed. It requires him to commit murder to keep the plant alive. Yeah, and there's there's an amazing musical number that uh, it's it's in the stage play. Brendan and I have both been in the play. Uh, I've been in it twice actually. Um, but it, it. Okay, who are you guys? Tell me who you are. Well, uh, the the second time I did it, I played the dentist. The first time I was just one of the one of the vagabonds on Skid Row, just a chorus member. Right, uh, and Brent, you do like different part bit parts as customers or whatever. Or, right, you know, one of the background people. But if I'm if I'm remembering it right, Brendan, I think you were even in this one number that got cut from the from the movie called "The Meek Shall Inherit," where it's literally mm-hmm. the turning point for Seymour's character, where so far. The murders that he's committed in order to keep the plant alive, to keep capitalism alive, were sort of incidental or they were justified, where this is the the musical number where he actually confronts, you know, well, if I kill the plant, if I end this cash cow, then she's not going to like me anymore. And that's when he makes his full heel turn and starts signing all the contracts, all the rich and famous contracts. It's a it's pretty grim and given the way that they they ended the movie as a you know as a positive it's it's a comedy as a movie it's a tragedy as a stage play uh, I'm not surprised that they got rid of it cuz he actually does become a bad guy at that point he's complicit in this system Right and in, in the original and cuz they actually shot the meek for inherit scene for the uh, movie, it's it's in the DVD extras. Yeah, and it's beautiful. And in it, it's like really well done. Yeah, you see like the tentacles like consuming him, and like the picture of his boss starts to bleed. Right. Like it's very not not subtle imagery. It's, it's about, pretty like, on how the nose. Con- right, and in the original ending to uh, to the play and originally the movie is that the plant capitalism just sucks up and eats everyone on Earth. Right. right. Well, and it's so funny because the. The Rick Moranis version where they cut in a happy ending undercuts the entire message of the play, right? Which is like, don't don't well, give no, in no, or whatever. Be, because No, because because the plant still survives at the end in a small bud form, which uh, I took to mean uh in the post-war America where we thought like social democracy would be okay. Mm. No, you always have to be on on guard. <laughs> Against this creeping, whatever, neoliberalism, market force capitalism. Sure. It's always there under However your feet. However they rebrand themselves, is, it's always going to try to get right. its tentacles back into you. This is, this is what I wrote about when I wrote that review of uh, the Nicole, Nicole Kidman movie, The Invasion. And no one believed me that it was actually about like creeping fascism <laughs> until I said, you know, the guy who directed this was the guy who directed Downfall. Like, I think he knows something about <laughs> Holy fascism. Holy cow, yeah. And everyone was like, was like, oh, wait, that ending's such a cop out because everyone says, oh, we don't remember being like fascist zombies. And I'm like, look at that actual ending. Look at Nicole Kidman's face. She's processing the fact that everyone has chosen to forget they were fascist zombies. <laughs> I think of like your 60 year old German director writing that, that may be on your mind a bit. Yeah, sure. Well, it's like, uh, you know, people who want to watch, say, uh, the original Dawn of the Dead as just a zombie film and not mm-hmm. a, a barely veiled critique of consumer culture you know you you can you can see it and racism yeah. and racism i mean you can you can see it if you're looking for it so uh, the the conceit of what's the most politically relevant i mean that it really is just a conceit i think there are a whole bunch of ones we can talk about and you mentioned one earlier that i'd like to throw into the ring which is the music man well either you're closing your eyes to a situation you do not wish to acknowledge 
or you are not aware of the caliber of disaster. Now hear me out. In broad strokes, the music man is about a fast-talking grifter who goes to (laughs) small-town America, populated entirely by white people, and tells them to be afraid of things, and he basically just gets all of the power in town. Uh, that sounds... Yeah, no, the, the Music Man is about how much Americans love being rubes and yeah, cons. Yeah, absolutely. They buy that monorail, and they just buy it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite musical. <laughs> yeah, what's his name in that in the uh, Simpsons episode? It's not... Ha- it's not Lyle Landley! Lyle Landley, yeah, not, not Harold Hill, <laughs> but Lyle Landley. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Uh, uh, real quick aside for people who listened to our, our show last week where we were talking about children's movies. Um, so Lyle Langley, Lyle Landley, Langley is played by uh, Phil Hartman in that, um, who also plays the terrifying Peter Laurie uh, tape recorder in Brave Little Toaster. So, boom, we're, we're connecting all of these episodes together. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was researching this topic, uh, you know, the obvious ones started popping up, but I had to dig a little bit deeper and find a musical that was ahead of its time. Okay. Which is a musical about a Black Lives Matter uprising uh, that's finding some street justice. I'm talking about ragtime. Ragtime. Man, yes. Ragtime is... Have you read the book? Oh, I have not read the book. I should dig into that. Okay. The book is written in, like, this first person, like, each character is talking to you, and just the most insane things happen. You have, like, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase worshipping pyramids so he can become an immortal pharaoh. (laughs) And, like, the Emma, Emma Goldman seducing, like, what is it, like, sister? Like, it's... And a long extended thing about like William Taft's farts, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't believe they cut the William Taft fart songs from the, uh, that would have been <laughs> no, so the, good. The actual line is America would never uh, elect another fat man because it had become a great big farting nation. <laughs> well, he was wrong on that one. <laughs> it, it happened. Yeah, so um, ragtime. So yes, ragtime. Ragtime's an amazing entry too because uh, for people who haven't seen it or listened to the score, it's a it's an interwoven narrative that incorporates what would you say like five or six different sorts of people at at various stages of society, um, and it's, it all takes place around the the turn of the twentieth century. So you have, as Brendan mentioned, the the black activist who he goes from being a a jazz singer to being like a radical, you know, that, that era's version of basically black lives matter. And then into, you know, actual um, like hostage taking and, and terrorism. You've got a a bougie white family uh, where the father is a representative of the fears of white people at the time that the nation is changing and there's nothing they can do about it. There are a couple of different immigrant stories, just people coming to America and trying to make the best life that they can. And one of them actually does end up being a, you know, an innovator and an inventor, which is, you know, that's absolutely a a narrative that you hear on the left about, you know, the benefit of opening the borders or at least not having them completely closed. So, yeah, I think that's a good entry. 
Right. They talk about like Harry Houdini as like an immigrant who's like he was, you know, working on the streets and now he's a millionaire. Um, everybody right. loves him. Uh, but I, yeah, no, I think it's amazing that the uh, the impetus of the of the play is that um, the, the the black guy's wife gets beat to death by the cops because she tries to like go see the president and like ask him about like why he's perpetuating racial injustice. Right. And they just beat her to death, uh, which is like this is a play that, uh, you know, people show to like they do it in high schools and stuff now. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And um, I was trying to think of another one. I wanted to say, like, not maybe uh, recent or modern musicals, but just the concept of the Federal Theater Project. Uh, I don't I don't know what that is. Take us through it. Okay, so the Federal Theater Project was a WPA sponsored program to help out the theatrical arts community. Uh, It was going to start in New York and then spread all over. I believe it was in New York and Chicago for a while. And it would basically be you would sort of like just sign up and say, I'm an actor, I'm a dancer, I'm a writer, I'm a whatnot. And the government would take control of certain theaters and just say, okay, we're going to be putting on X numbers of shows a day. We have X numbers of things to fill. We're This is a make work project for the theatrical yeah. industry. And uh, they still actually kind of have a form of this in Britain, which is really interesting. And... It was always it was loathed by the conservatives in Congress for a really long time. So it didn't actually last. Wait, very wait. Long. The conservatives in Congress thing- weren't into the idea of uh, putting money into the arts. Art, art for the sake of yeah, art. Yeah, I know it's Ugh. weird. Man, how how times have well, changed. The thing was that they they started to say like, well, you can't have art for the sake of art. You have to have things that are like morally redemptive or like illustrative of Western <laughs> values because. You know, these people were born in the 1870s. Yeah, sure. so, uh, and, and we see the echoes so, of that now with uh, how dedicated the conservative wing is to free speech for conservative values. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, like, you would have um, morally upright plays. One of them is called Spirochete. It's actually really good. It's about syphilis. Huh. And, like, the dangers and whatnot. But it's, it's very interestingly tuned because it's like, oh, actually, the problem isn't men visiting prostitutes. The problem is that we don't have a natural health right. system. <laughs> and they started doing these things called um, newspaper plays. And I found this fascinating. These were plays that would dra- dramatize things happening in the newspaper, like oh, current man. events. And they would be like, you know, farmers losing their fields because the bank was foreclosing on them and the government wasn't buying them right. out. Or whatnot. Or there'd be like things about like worker strikes and how like, you know, houses of workers would be bulldozed if they were struck uh, in a coal mine in Alabama. And some people got a little upset about that because these were touring shows and they would take those shows to those communities and see like, here, here is your enemy and here's what they're doing yeah, to you. Wow. And um, the movie Cradle Will Rock is a very good description of the federal theater project it did not last long it had the potential to be really transformative there was oh there was a a children's play called the busy beaver all about like collectivism and unionizing that's awesome yeah no the beavers can only build the band if they all work together (laughs) yeah i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to read up on that because what it reminds me of is sort of the like the ancient greek model where the, the events of the day were turned into theatrical productions and it became this, mm-hmm. um, the, the way that a lot of people got their news was you would go and see one of these street plays that it was a dramatized version of events that were actually happening because it was a great way to disseminate information. 
And I guess my... That's a great way to build up sympathy. Yeah, sure. Well, and I, I guess, uh, you know, before we get into more specific examples, I wonder what you guys think about um, the the power of theater. Because, I mean, John, you, you pointed out that, you know, stage theater is a very uh, bourgeois thing, right? I mean, they, they literally mention it in Les Mis, where they're trying to figure out what is it we're fighting for in one of the kind of more cynical um he's he's a revolutionary but his his approach to this is very cynical about what other people's motivations are he says what are we fighting like are we literally fighting just for the right uh for people to go to the opera it is time for us all to decide who we are do we fight for the right to a night at the opera now and and i wonder what you think about you know, what is the, what's the revolutionary potential, if there is any, of stage theater, uh, musical theater or otherwise? Or is it, is it destined to just be sort of a, a bourgeois pursuit? Well, um, I guess I have to like dig into my Brecht here, um, which is like, I don't fundamentally believe in the power of art to change minds necessarily because, you know, all the Nazis love their classical music. Sure. And they love their great paintings. Like you can enjoy something and not understand it at all. <laughs> yeah, every every alt writer, every every person with a Pepe avatar on Twitter loves listening to Wagner. Yeah, well, they don't, but they do, say they do. Do they? <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's like, but the thing theater can do is that theater is one of the most intimate art forms because you're directly in front of someone doing something, and they're doing something embarrassing which is that they're pretending to be someone else. <laughs> right. So the capacity, you know, the ability of all art across the board is to create and inspire empathy. And the way we build class consciousness and solidarity is through empathy. So the potential for that is there. The problem is like sub, the problem is thinking of it as the entire orchestra and not just the oboe. Like, uh, Okutlan says that um, we must use every instrument in our orchestra to create a revolution. Well, art, theater, and plays, like these all have the potential to be part of the orchestra, but they're not the whole thing. And right. actually, actually the, the current affairs podcast, number four, had a really great discussion about political humor and like what is the point. And the point of political humor is to be propaganda. So therefore, effective political humor uh, is on target and focused. So, like, you're not making fun of someone because they're fat or they're slutty or they're a woman. You're making fun of them because they support these horrendous policies, because they're monstrously rich, because right. uh, they're – even that they're hypocrites, even though that doesn't really <laughs> land. But, like, it's still more on target than you're orange. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, uh, and, and actually, you remind me of – there's a another Lindsay Ellis video. I didn't realize we were going to talk about Lindsay Ellis so much on the show, but um, hi, Lindsay. Hope your marriage was good. Your <laughs> wedding. Um, she talks about uh, the Mel Brooks musical, The Producers, and mm -hmm. how what the producers is actually satirizing. It's not just using Nazi imagery because the producers needed something incredibly offensive to make a musical about. It's specifically lampooning how fragile fascism is, especially all of the theatrical trappings of it, uh, mm -hmm. and and points out just how that, chintzy and hoaxy it is. Yeah, 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 exactly. And how they got away with uh, 
at, at risk of sounding like I, I'm admiring it, I'm just saying that they got away with making it look kind of cool to the masses for a long time, specifically because you weren't allowed to criticize it. Um, right. So everyone was kind of caught up in, in that aesthetic, and that was all you were seeing, and so this is what our country looks like. But it's just a just a hair's breadth away from being absolutely ridiculous if you just take it a little bit more over the top. And I, I think that's a I think that's a good point for a lot of um, especially satirical um, satirical theater in this day and age that you know these structures that we hold up if you take them just a tiny bit farther you know it it can make a point about something in your culture that is so flimsy that you can take it out of the knees just by teasing it a little bit and uh and and on that theme i wanted to throw in um specifically about uh sort of the the impetus in our culture to always be hustling um to make sure that uh, you're you're accumulating your social media clout. Uh, you, uh, you look every at these, minute has to be productive. <laughs> every minute has to be productive, but specifically, you know, the the more outrageous you are, the more famous you can be, and thus the more shielded from responsibility is Chicago. Give on the old hocus pocus bead and feather rum. How can they see with sequins in their eyes? What if your hinges all are rusting? What if, in fact, you're just disgusting? Razzle dazzle them and they'll never catch why. Oh, I just rewatched Chicago. Nice. So yeah, no, there's there's a whole. It's entirely about celebrity culture. Yeah, and I I think it's. Um, I mean, obviously that's a thing that uh, has has lasted for as long as we've been a country. Celebrity culture, but specifically in the era of social media platforming, I mean, you've got this. Who's this gal with the frizzy hair who takes the the pictures of her holding a an AK or like two AKs in front of an American flag. And it's so transparently a grift to try to create outrage among liberals so that she can go back to her base of, of MAGA hats and say, like, look at how outraged they are. They're trying to shut me down. Buy, buy my T-shirts you know? or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it's like you mentioned with uh, the music man. That's like fundamentally Americans love being grifted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, we we love the people who do it to us. And look at look at Trump country, you know, whatever that is, it's it's pockets all over the country, to be honest. It's Um, rich retirees. Yeah, it's rich retirees. It's, uh, you know, disenfranchised, entitled uh, white college students. It's, you know, we call those libertarians. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, I think we figured it out. The real musical that is a reflection of our current culture is uh, Tina Fey's Mean Girls on Broadway. <laughs> on Wednesdays, if you wear pink, you get half off your ticket price. <laughs> you're you're kidding. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not. If you're in the ticket lottery and you're wearing pink on Wednesday, you get first choice. Oh, my God. That's how I saw it. 
Uh, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I, I think I think Brendan nailed it then because because if there's one thing that defines uh, defines liberal politics right now, it is performative consumerism. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although it's interesting, we didn't bring up cabaret at all. Oh yes, please, uh, please talk about cabaret. Well, uh, cabaret's like been been talked to death. It's it's about the rise of uh, fascism. Isherwood, the original author, famously hated it actually, um, because he thought it made Berlin look too glamorous and Sally was too good a singer. He was like, "No, everything was shit back then. Why do you right. think these people became extremists?" <laughs> right. It was like you know you could buy a boy for five cents. It was not a good deal. Um, but yeah, cabaret is about like. You know, the entire thing, this plot line with Max is about, like, it's so hard being poor. It's so hard struggling. Isn't it easier to just give in? Yeah. I mean, that's, that is, it's grim as hell, but then it's a grim show. And, I mean, certainly that's where we are with a lot of people who just have opted out of participating in, in the political process at this point. Well, that's that's the song in, in the play and not the, the movie, which is I Don't Care Much. Which is all about, look, my life is never going to get any better. Um, nothing I do really matters. So I'm just going to do whatever it takes to survive. If it means becoming a prostitute, if it means becoming a Nazi, I don't care because I don't care much. Well, I think it's it's time to lift it back up. Yeah, it's got to be. <laughs> I am I'm glad in this segment that we didn't get around to making the obvious uh, SpongeBob musical joke. <laughs> I was I was that or Mean Girls. I was I was weighing it out. SpongeBob <laughs> yeah, will be leading the revolution. That's how we know it. It'll be very colorful. <laughs> Didn't it like win the most Tonys or something recently? Uh, what is happening? It is Look, I I've seen excerpts. It's a very busy play. Lots of stuff is happening and you feel like you're getting the most amount of money's worth. <laughs> yeah, I mean there's something for spectacle. Yeah, yeah, it's it's basically a circus show, so who cares? Uh, be be kind of like uh, trying to keep up with the news right now. Sorry, I'm just trying to stay on theme. How's that? How's that politically going? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I I agree, Brendan. I think it's probably time to uh, take a little break and take it out on a high note. Uh, maybe we can. Maybe one of us will break out into song randomly. Yeah, so from international politics to more international politics, the World Cup is finally happening. What's in, that? In Russia, it's where <laughs> a bunch of Russians uh, like take steroids and then like cheat at kicking a ball around. Oh man, um, has that been? Are are they getting in trouble for that? I mean, not yet, but. I, you know, it don't, It seems like just recently they were doing that a lot. So, you know, I have yeah. to imagine there, there's something going on, especially they <laughs> opened the tournament by 
Russia beating Saudi Arabia five to nothing in Holy the cow. in the opening game. Um, but then Iran won their game. Uh, Iceland yeah. tied Argentina, which has a uh, Lionel Messi on it, who's like arguably like one of the best current players, and they're tying Iceland. Um, which is, uh, as an entire country, there are less people in Iceland than in Omaha. And then uh, Mexico beating Germany. That was a little bit of an upset there. Uh, Finally, yeah, that sure. feud is over. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my favorite take on the uh, Germany thing was, like, if only there was some historical precedent for Germany going to Russia and encountering a defense that they couldn't break through. <laughs> Didn't expect the Mexican Inquisition, though. Well, nobody expects the Mexican Inquisition. <laughs> Especially since, historically, it was one of the mildest. Oh, history knowledge. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that's fun. I, I love uh, I love seeing those crazy upsets. Um, you know, uh, it'll, it'll be fun to see uh, what happens to Russia. Maybe they, you know, cheat their way to a World Cup victory. That'd be that'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah, speaking of things that are politically relevant in this day and age. <laughs> well, they just they just start bombing various opposing teams. Yeah. <laughs> they're just going to they're just going to annex one of the better teams, um, maybe a Portugal or something like that. Portugal has always been part of Russia. It speaks Russian. It's ethnically Russian. <laughs> well, Brendan's high note was uh international but i'm gonna take it intergalactic oh <gasps> um you know last week this is kind of becoming a theme with me is talking about the completely unhinged star wars fandom and oh it, didn't you hear star wars is canceled man solo didn't do that great they're shutting it down <laughs> yeah right well what's what's funny it, actually we'll circle back around to that right so uh this this new twitter account made a bit of a splash today and it's specifically to remake the last jedi and it's somebody and for one thing this is obviously grift this is somebody who's going to get a kickstarter going they're going to abscond with the money and move to you know the seychelles or something like that but the uh the point behind this account is that disney and specifically ryan johnson the director of The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi haven't been listening to the fans, you guys. And that's why we disagree with these movies, because they're not doing what the fans want. And so they're trying to raise $200 million in order to produce a remake of The Last Jedi, which literally came out, what, six months ago? Just, haven't these people heard of fan fiction? <laughs> uh, apparently they have not not good enough um, did they did that, they sign adam driver onto this is he uh yeah i mean there there are one million do they know what copyrights this. are <laughs> yeah um that's the uh that's that's been one of the biggest objections was that you know uh like we're we're waiting for a response from disney and it's like you know i think you're gonna be disappointed when you get the response <laughs> from disney and they're slapping you with a copyright lawsuit uh, but these people, it, okay, either it's just a, an absolute grift or it's one of the most amazing pieces of satire I've ever seen because, or it's the most depressing thing you've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, which, uh, you know, given the state of the star Wars fandom, I think the, the simplest explanation probably is the right one that these are just 
a bunch of man children who do not know how any of this shit works don't realize that you know disney's not going to respond to you let me i, I want to check the uh the account yeah they've got uh 3800 followers on twitter i've got to believe that about i don't know 3600 of them are satirical follows just to see <laughs> the next bonkers thing they say um but just a few hours ago ryan johnson the the director of the new trilogy um spotted this and tweeted out just please 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 and then a bunch of prayer hands and uh the remake the last jedi twitter account says you know the movie is bad when its own director is begging for a remake <laughs> it's like guys guys th this is how badly you have missed the pitch on this <laughs> Oh, it's just been bringing me joy all day to to think about people who are so upset about what amounts to a f film for children not being made quite to their specifications. And so they've got this elaborate multi-year plan that we're going to we're going to remake it. It's going to be better this time. So, Brendan, you mentioned that um, that after Solo didn't do super well at the box office, they put some of these other kind of expanded universe or prequels and the, the little Star Wars story side projects on hold. And the remake The Last Jedi guy is like, see, it's working. Like, they're, they're responding to fan demand. And <laughs> everyone's like, no, the press release says specifically that they're just redirecting those resources into finishing the trilogy that you hate so much. Yeah, maybe it's like people don't want two Star Wars movies every year for, for the rest of their life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's already Star Wars burnout. And the the funniest thing about it to me is that I haven't seen it yet. But by all accounts, Solo, the Han Solo movie is exactly what the fans would want, where everybody plays exactly the character they were in the original trilogy. It doesn't advance the plot at all. It's just a bunch of flash and no substance. And that's the one that's not doing very well. As opposed to the auteur-driven The Last Jedi, which brought in like $1.3 billion or something like that and was... Which we should mention has a solid critique of capitalism and war profiteering in it. Yeah, that is true. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's my high note. Um, I, I wish these guys the best of luck, uh, not in succeeding in their plans, but in remaining as deluded as they are because they have they have brought me <laughs> no end of entertainment uh for the past 24 hours and i i'm hoping that that lasts uh at least through the next movie <laughs> yeah I, I hope they fan film it it's gonna be good <laughs> oh yeah yeah totally I, I would love to see uh you know just like some dude's uncle cast as luke skywalker because obviously none of the none of the original actors are gonna <laughs> sign on to this they, they're even talking about like uh, you know, we'd have to refilm all of the Carrie Fisher scenes. It's like, ooh, man, does somebody want to tell them? <laughs> they already got CG Carrie Fisher. Just let her let them borrow it for a little bit. Right, right. <laughs> so, John, what's your uh, your high note? Uh, to, I, I think you were going to bring it back around to some stuff we were talking about at the top of the show. Right. I'm going to bring it back to like we did international, we did uh, media and fandom, and I want to bring it back. I want. I'm the materialist of this group. Sure. I believe in things yeah. that exist. So <laughs> I want to praise the amazing actions of both DSA activists and other immigration activists across the entire country in uh, suppressing 
ice activities and whatnot from Metro DC DSA. Absolutely. <laughs> Chanting yeah, and, and screaming at the Secretary of Defense. Department of Secretary at her Mexican lunch, at her fancy Mexican dinner. My favorite part of that is that no one stopped them. Like other people in the restaurant right. were cheering. The waitstaff was like, no, please go ahead. Yep. This person yep. deserves to never be in public ever again. I and guess this, have... the same thing, the same thing happened to Stephen Miller the other day. Um, why are these dudes going to Mexican restaurants? Like, you do they want why. people no, to, you know to take a dump it's on because... their taco? No, it's it's like it's like the thing with uh, small towns, like small business suburban tyrants. The only type of society they understand is the thing between server and consumer. Uh, right. So that's the only power dynamic that they can really get off on. So you had that. You had the New York City DSA like chanting "Quit your job, Nazi pigs!" all outside the ICE headquarters. <laughs> there, uh, you had the in Louisville, which had three hundred people. Outside ice, uh, all that great stuff. And in particular, the Portland encampment, starting out the roots of Occupy, I hadn't heard a call for a general assembly in, you know, eight years. Right. So that was something for me. And, you know, they kept them from leaving, which I thought was great. The ice agents at the agent at the uh, prison weren't allowed to leave because there were just too many people outside. And, you know, at some point right. they were claiming they have to leave. They have to see their family. It's like, <laughs> but the best thing, my top thing, the thing I will not shut up about is that the ICE operatives in the prison called for pizza and the people outside occupying seized the pizza and took it for themselves. <laughs> Seized, seized the means of pizza reduction. Right, and it, it wasn't violent. They they talked to the delivery guy. They explained it, and the delivery guy was like, "Yeah, you guys deserve this pizza. It's already been paid for." I so, mean, uh, if ICE wanted to get pizzas delivered, they shouldn't have like tried to arrest a pizza dude in Brooklyn or whatever after getting a pizza yeah, delivered yeah, to them. Yeah, like it's like it's. Oh my god, we live in the stupidest freaking timeline, but. You know, it's America, so all of our great greatest controversies are about fast food, like see Chickafilla and all that, like <laughs> Starbucks or whatever. You know, so that's that's my high point. They took the pizza. They deserved the pizza. Pizza for the people. I think it's brilliant. You know, and as a as a more general high note, it seems like what's going to happen is all of the people who are involved in these ICE detentions and these absolutely ghastly policies are just going to find it impossible for them to ever eat anything except for their own home cooking ever again. <laughs> oh, or drink anything. In St. Louis, there was going to be like a cocktail fun happy hour mixer for ice prosecutors until they found oh out God. that until they found out that the St. Louis DSA Socialist Alternative and Immigrant and Refugee Justice Groups had found out about it and were going to flood the space, so they canceled at right. the last minute. <laughs> I love it. You don't get to have you don't get yeah. to have a nice time anymore. You don't get nice things. You don't get to tear families apart, institute absolutely fascist policies, and then go out for drinks and you know do skee ball and like bar trivia at the end of the day. Yeah, that's yeah. It's, these no these are choices that no you've paisan. made. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Absolutely. And, and if you start to feel bad for ICE, just remember that the director of ICE went on Tucker Carlson and Tucker Carlson threw him a softball question that was like, 
doesn't it make you feel sad that everyone calls you Nazis? And the director of Ice said, yeah, we're not like Nazis at all, because unlike Nazis, we're just following orders. <laughs> Please remember Tucker Carlson went to a private boarding school. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tucker Carlson, who rants about the elites constantly, I mean, he is he is just one step away from being the... Uh, like the uh, like Rwanda. He has the Habsburg jaw too. He does. He does. No, he's he's one step away from being like the Rwanda radio stations calling for you know cutting down the tall trees or whatever. He is <laughs> he is so close to doing that. While while perpetually looking confused. Yeah. <laughs> so so <laughs> yeah. squinty. So squinty. Well, that's a that's a great high note, John. Thank you. Um, yeah, solidarity with comrades all over the country who are opposing ICE, who are pushing these progressive policies uh going back to the top of the show when we were talking about public and postal banking uh we will include links to some of the resources that john provided us with uh in the show description so if you're interested in learning more about that uh please check those links out and tell other people uh postal banking in particular i've found is one that it's such a no-brainer that as soon as you bring it up with somebody who has never heard of it before they go Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Why don't we do yeah. that already? What a, what a great idea. Right. Right. And, and remember, the pilot programs are being uh, unlaunched in the Bronx, Cleveland, and Baltimore. So if you I don't know how many of your listeners are in the Bronx, but the Campaign for Postal Banking could really use signatures. And they could also use signatures in the other cities. Yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. And we'll, we'll link to those campaigns as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, uh, John, where can folks find you online and, and read more about the work that you do? Uh, well, I'm incessantly and annoyingly on Twitter at, uh, <laughs> at You're delightfully Hello. on Twitter. <laughs> it's, it's because I work from home and I've recently had a lot of medical problems, so I have nothing else to do. Uh, okay. It's at... Levitt Alone, L-E-A-V-I-T-T, Alone. Uh, I can also be found at levittalone.com. And I am on Metafilter as The Welk. Excellent. Uh, And as always, audience, you can find us on Twitter at liquid underscore flannel. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Like and rate us there. It helps get the word out. Uh, Brendan Williams, you are also on Twitter, I believe. I'm at Brendan Williams with one L on the Twitter. And I'm Matthew Hodges. You can find me at Matt the Great with a W. And one more thanks to John for being with us, man. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Cool. And we will uh, we'll see you all next week. Let me tell you, fellas, when you work, you create something called value. And who takes that value? Why? It's the man above who has worked a day in his life. Friends, what you need starts with a U and ends with an N, and that's what I call union. <laughs> I would see this show. I would absolutely see this oh, show. Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> Look for it in 2020. We call it now. <laughs>